Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. As we continue talking about how to raise the next generation for Christ, really what we're talking about is discipleship. How do you disciple the next generation? How do you have a Paul become a Timothy to impart to faithful men to teach others also? How do we invest in the next generation or invest in a peer who needs to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, This past week on uh, Thursday and Friday, I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, and uh, speaking at uh, Ministry Chapel at uh, Liberty University. And on Thursday night, we went to supper uh, with a couple of uh, guys that are in seminary that are about to go start a church plant after they graduate, still trying to figure out where they're going to plant that church. And while we were there, a waiter came up and asked us how we were doing and what we needed and everything else. And when he walked away, uh, the, guy, the guy that was at the table, Darby, that was at the table with me said, uh, said, you know, I work in a youth group home trying to help kids that are in serious, serious trouble. He said, that young man right there came out of that youth group home and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And, and he's a waiter, but he's investing in other kids. You know what he's doing? He got saved, and he's discipling kids and working in that home that he was raised in so that he can invest in others to say, you don't have to go down the wrong path. Let me, let me ask you something. If you sat down with somebody in a restaurant or on an airplane and you were to say to them, you know, what do you do or who are you? How would you respond to that question? <clears throat> Here, here's how I think you should respond and you fill in your occupation. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised as a school teacher or a banker or a plumber or a housewife. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say that that's how I think you ought to respond? Because the name Christian has become so watered down, we have to use so many adjectives to describe it. They were first called Christians in Antioch, whether that was a term of derision or whether it was an admission that they acted like Jesus. When you say somebody's a Christian today, I mean, how many of you have heard a politician say, oh, I'm a Christian? You go, really? I mean, seriously? How many of you have done business with somebody that said, oh, I'm a Christian? You can trust me. And you go, really? Are you serious? Because if you're what a Christian is, I don't want to be what you are. But when you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are saying that I am learning and following and obeying a master. I have put myself in a position to learn, to follow, and to obey. Now, the word Christian appears three times in the New Testament. The word disciple appears 30 times, and the word disciples appears 242 times. The New Testament word that was the favorite word and the identifiable word was that they were disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So what are you? Well, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, skillfully disguised as a preacher. Because you see, if somebody asks me, if you sit down on a plane and say, well, what are you doing? And, and if I say I'm a preacher, I'm dead in the water at that point. I mean, they pick up Sky Magazine. They put it up in front of their face. They get their iPod. I mean, I'm dead in the water. If I say I'm a Christian, they say, well, what kind? Because they've got their ideas about Christians. And so they'll, they'll say, are you charismatic? Are you reformed? Are you formal? Are you, uh, are you free? Are, are, are you a, a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Are you denominational, non-denominational? Are you spirit-filled? Are, are, you, are you this? And we get all these adjectives, but there ought to be just one word that defines us. That when you say that word, it gives you an opportunity to take the next step with somebody. And a good word is the word disciple. So the question is, if I'm going to raise the next generation for Christ, am I a disciple? Because I cannot impart that which is not a part of me. So am I a disciple? Secondly, what am I a disciple of? Because that defines who we are. That defines the legacy that we leave. And so if we're going to, to change this next generation, we've got to remember some things. And one of the things that we've got to remember is the jobs that we have are what we get paid to do. Our calling is what we were made to do. You were made. God formed you and saved you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You just happen to have a vocation to pay the bills. By the way, that word called in Acts where it says they were called Christians, that is a vocational term. It seemed that their business was Jesus Christ. Not that they were tent makers, not that they were men who worked on ships, but their business, their calling, their vocation was Jesus Christ. How sad it would be if we were only identified by our titles or our job descriptions, and not by who we really are. You know, one of the things I love about Randy, and Randy, I'm going to use you for an illustration. You're sitting here. Anybody that sits here is a possible illustration. But uh, one of the things I love about Randy is, is when he took a stand on abortion issues, it cost him dearly. A very liberal judge ruled that he could never make a dime off the royalties of his books. And although he has sold millions of books, this man right here lives off minimum wage and is content because he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, can I tell you something? I don't know, this is just me being honest with you, I don't know that me or anyone else in this room would be content to live off minimum wage because we have wrapped up our identity in our houses, in our cars, in our things, in our clothes, in our stuff, and not in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And therefore, most of us are not content. And it would be hard for us to say that our life verse would be, I've learned that whatever state I'm in to be content. A disciple is content because they're following the right person for the right reasons and having the right results in their life. So let's look at the biblical model. And uh, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 
3, Mark chapter 3, and I want you to see this verse because it is a clear image of a willingness to accept leadership, of a willingness to be teachable. Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. And he appointed 12 that he might be with them. Again, as we've looked at in this series, that is an invitation to intimacy. He appointed 12 that we might be with him, not know about him, not know stuff, not know facts, but know him. He appointed 12 that they could hang out with him, that they could be with him, that they could learn from him, that they could follow him. And, and, and when you look at this phrase, just that phrase right there is a picture of sheep following a shepherd. Why? Because being with him, they learned how to live, how to walk. And, and the image is radical. It is radical. It assumes a changed life. When you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ or a Christ follower or a disciple or a Christian, it should assume a changed life. It should be a radical statement that makes you an opposite in picture of what the world is. That we are distinctively different, not weird, but distinctively different as believers in Jesus Christ. America, it may be the only country in the world where you can be a hodgepodge with society and call yourself a Christian and it not have consequences. It has consequences in the Middle East. It has consequences in India. It has consequences in Turkey. It has consequences all over Africa. For you to call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ could cost you your life. Here, it cost us little or nothing, which makes me beg the question, how can we call ourselves Christians? How can we call ourselves disciples? How can we expect to go to heaven when there's not been a radical change in our lives? Not only is it radical, it's dynamic. It's dynamic. It's not static. It's dynamic. It implies that we're growing, that we are maturing. You remember the scripture says, I could not speak to you as spiritual brethren, but as carnal. The, the Corinthians were not growing up. They had gotten saved and they went to church and they were sitting and soaking and souring. They, they were just getting mellow with the years. You know, you can be a Christian for 40 years and not mature. It, it implies that it's dynamic and it's an image of obedience. It's an image of obedience. Luke chapter 14 talks about the fact that we are to love him more than father, mother, brother, or sister. Yes, even more than our own lives, or we cannot be his disciples. Erasmus, one of the early church scholars, wanted to put the Bible in the language of the people, and when he wrote it, in the preface of the translation, he wrote these words. These sacred words give you the very image of Christ speaking Christ healing, Christ dying, Christ rising again, and make him so present that were he before your eyes, you would not more truly see him. Here's what Jesus wants from us as disciples, that when people see us 
if Jesus were before their eyes in the flesh, they would not more truly see him than they see him when they see us. Does that shock you? That is what he saved us to be. We're not there, but we ought to be in process of getting there. We ought to be growing to be more and more and more like Jesus. That when people look at us, and if we tell them they're a Christian, or somebody tells them that we're a Christian, they're not shocked by that word. Now, now let's look at some things here uh, on this being with him. First of all, Jesus had the vision to think small. Now, that may seem contradictory, but Jesus had the vision to think small. You see, he wasn't trying to mass-produce disciples. He knew that to produce effective disciples, you had to think small because you impact and influence up close, not in masses. And so he thought small. I need to get... 12 men, and for the next three and a half years, pour my life into them so that when I'm gone, they can carry on the ministry for which the Father has sent me to do. Secondly, Jesus always ministered with the end of his earthly ministry in mind. He always ministered with the end of his earthly ministry in mind. He wasn't going to be with them all the time. In fact, they got upset when they found out. They thought, man, this is a great deal. Jesus is walking around with us. We get to be in the club. We're in the circle. And Jesus said, I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise and I'm going to leave. But I'm going to send a comforter and encourager to you. He always lived and spoke with a deadline. He knew that there was going to be a deadline when he would leave this earth, when he would not physically be present. And so in preparing us to be his disciples, he always prepared on the basis of, I'm going to give you what you need to do what I've called you to do. Thirdly, Jesus' ministry became the disciples' ministry. The ministry of Jesus became the ministry of the disciples. You remember what we looked at last week? As he was going, he found Peter and Andrew and James and John. As he sent the disciples out, as you go, make disciples. As they went, the church in Acts began to spread, and the gospel was proclaimed. And they were closer to reaching the world 70 years after the time of Christ than we are today. The disciples' ministry was the ministry of Jesus. The disciples did not sit down and say, you know what, let's come up with another plan. Now that Jesus is gone, let's improve on his plan. You can't improve on the plan of Jesus. You can't improve on his model and on his method. It is still the best one. It is how we make disciples. And next, the life of Jesus was their curriculum. The life of Jesus was their curriculum. Uh, they didn't get a study course book from Nashville. The life of Jesus was their curriculum. They studied his life. That's why the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because walking with him and listening to him and observing him, they noticed something about him while they were with him that they didn't have a good handle on, prayer. And so they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So... 
That's the biblical model. Let's look at the Greek model. In the Greek model, the Greeks at the time of Christ would take their children out to a field to meet a scholar or a scribe, someone who was learned in mathematics or in, uh, in science. And they would take their children out and they would sit under a tree with this scholar and with this teacher, and this teacher would spend the day. That's where we get the idea of school. Some of you wish, let's go to 12-month school. That's where we get the idea for it. They would spend a day with this teacher, and the teacher would walk around and talk, and the children would follow him around. And as the children began to follow him around, now watch me, as the children began to follow him around, if the teacher would talk like this and walk like this, before long the kids would be coming home from being out in the field with the teacher, and they would talk like this and walk like this. You know why? They were mimicking the one that was investing in them. And so if the teacher said, like, God, then every time they said God, they would say, God. I mean, you know this. How many preachers have you watched that have tried to be Billy Graham? <laughs> I mean, they try his mannerisms and everything, but there's only one Billy Graham. But it's a form of flattery because people try to copy him. But that's what a disciple-maker does. A disciple-maker spends enough time with people to the point where they get their idiosyncrasies and they get their mannerisms and they get their habits, and all of a sudden, they're doing the same thing that the teacher was doing. What's happened? They've learned, and they are modeling what has been modeled to them. So they learn by following, they learn by listening, and then they learn by obeying. They learn by following, they learn by listening, and they learn by doing. And so the Greeks had this model. It was called peripatetic teaching, and it meant to walk around and teaching and discipling as you're walking around. And so here's the criteria. First of all, it's an investment in a long-term relationship. It's an investment in a long-term relationship. It means that if you're going to disciple somebody you're going to spend time with them. You're going to invest in them. It's not five minutes after church. I mean, you can disciple somebody about something that they need to do in their life in five minutes, but a disciple maker has a relationship. They earn the right. And there's a relationship that runs both ways. There's the, the learner and the teacher. There's the follower and the leader. And so it's an investment in a long-term relationship. By the way, the day your children were born, you began an investment in a long-term relationship. And it doesn't end when they move out of the house. You'll always be the dad or the mom. And your job is to continually invest some of you say, man, I'm invested now, and they're breaking me. But uh, that's not the kind of investing. Your job is to continually invest and to teach because you should always be learning, and you should always have that mentor value in your life where they look to you for advice, and they look to you for wisdom, and you're on their board of directors, and you're on their group of people that they listen to when they're making life decisions. So it's an investment in a long-term relationship. Secondly, it's transferable. It's transferable. 
In other words, discipling the next generation crosses generational lines. Discipleship is not something for one generation and the next one says, well, that's not really the way it works. It's worked for thousands of years. It's transferable. Paul said, the things that you learned and heard and seen in me, these impart to faithful men who will teach others also. And then thirdly, it's purposeful. It's purposeful. I mean, you've got a reason for doing what you're doing. You're trying to raise them up so that they don't stumble or drive off a cliff when they get older. Now, let's look at the biblical question. And you're going to have to listen a lot faster because I'm only halfway through. <laughs> Say, oh, dear Lord, here we go again. <laughs> the biblical question, Mark chapter... Well, I tell you what, turn to John 14. We'll just see how far we get. John 14. John 14 and verse 6. Very familiar verse, but I want you to write three words in your Bible by these three phrases in John 14 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, here's a truth you have to understand. Jesus didn't say, I'm an option. He said, I'm the way. And so the way is a word of direction, a word of direction. What direction are you pointing your children, those you're discipling, what direction are you pointing them in? Are you pointing in the direction of the way, the only way that anybody can get to heaven? The truth is a word of declaration. It's a word of declaration. It is declaring that God's word is truth and all other books of religion and all other religions are not the truth. They may even have some truth in them, but they're not the truth, the word of God. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus is consistent with the word and the word will always reveal Jesus to us. And then there's the life. That's a word of demonstration, a word of demonstration. So there's direction, there's declaration, and there's demonstration about who Jesus is and what we're supposed to do. Now turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Because the question we've got to ask ourselves is, am I correct about this? Am I correct about this issue, about who Jesus is? Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, there he is. He's going again. He's walking on the way. While he's walking, and the disciples are trailing behind him, while he's walking, he's asking questions. He's teaching them. It's the normal pattern of life. He didn't look at his clock and say, Oh, time for a discipleship lesson. He's walking. On the way, he questioned disciples saying, who do people say that I am? And then you see all these answers that the disciples get. Well, John the Baptist, that sounds like a good answer. Elijah, that, that could be a good answer. But then Jesus personalizes it, which you always do when you're making a disciple. Who do you say that I am? What does it mean to you? I don't care about what your peers think. I don't care about what opinion polls say. I don't care about political correctness. Who do you say that I am? And that is the strategic question of discipleship. Because if we don't know who Jesus is, then the world will never know who he is. 
We have to know who he is. And Jesus wants his disciples to be able to articulate who he is. And the average person, I'll just say Southern Baptist because that's what we are. The average person in a Southern Baptist church could not articulate clearly who Jesus is for more than about one or two minutes because we don't know how to defend our faith. We don't know how to clearly state who Jesus is because we want to get it by osmosis instead of learning at the feet of Jesus who he is and what he does to change people's lives. That's why we don't witness because we get stumped. And we're afraid somebody's going to ask us a question we don't know. Listen, if you've been saved for 10 years, you ought to know the answer to the basic questions that human beings ask about who Jesus is. You should just know it. I mean, you ought to know it. You know who starts for the Braves. You know who's starting for the Falcons this week. You know who's playing on your high school team. You know the batting average of the teams that are going to the World Series. You know who the starting pitcher is. Why don't you know the basic facts about Jesus? It's because it's not important to you. Because what's important to you, you learn and you pay attention to. And so Jesus comes in Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter pulled him aside and said, Jesus, now you're just wrong. You're, 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 you're wrong. That's, that's not going to happen on my watch. You, you just, Jesus, I, I, I just need to tell you, I, I'm a disciple and I'm following you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you on this. <laughs> Peter had to learn something, didn't he? Now, let me give you a statement to write down. It's a little lengthy, but this is a statement you need to write down. Probably need to write it in your Bible somewhere. Peter was right about Jesus being Christ. Peter was right about Jesus being Christ. It's up on the screen, so it'll help you. Peter was right about Jesus being Christ, but he was wrong about the kind of Christ Jesus was. Which, by the way, if you're right about Christ, you can't believe the prosperity gospel. If you're right about Christ, you can't believe that if I follow Jesus, I'll never have to suffer. I'll never have to pay a price because it's a wide road. It's a broad road. It's an easy road. That's not the Christ of the New Testament. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, then you better be right about the kind of Christ that he is. Otherwise, you'll think you led somebody to Christ, but what you did is you led to somebody to your idea of who Christ is and not who Christ is. And so Jesus has to rebuke him and confront him and deal with what's going on. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples. Now he's telling everybody. Okay, he's gone from his discipleship group, and now he's in church on Sunday morning. And he says to the crowd, to the Sunday morning crowd, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange 
for his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's not ashamed. Not ashamed. All right. You think Jesus was clear on that? You, you don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure, it, figure that out. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, you're not my disciple. So I'm going to ask you something. I'm not going to ask you if you're a member of Sherwood Baptist Church. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever made a decision. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been baptized. I'm going to ask you a very simple question, and there's a yes or no answer. When you walk out of this room, and when you go to work, and when you go to school, and when you're at home, and when you're talking to your neighbors, are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Second simple question. If you're not ashamed of him, are you trying to be quiet about him? Yes or no? And by the way, if you're trying to be quiet about him, you're ashamed of him. You're ashamed of him. And Jesus said, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you don't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. Some of you in this room today, if you're honest, and you quit worrying about what everybody thinks, you are a member of a church, you've been baptized, you've made decisions, but you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There's never been that conviction of sin. There's never been that moment when you changed your life radically. You got involved, you got in church, you got in church enough to know the language, to know how to carry on a conversation, to enjoy the fellowship, to enjoy the food when your Sunday school class has food, to enjoy hanging out with people that are nice and you don't have to be the designated driver with them. I mean, you can get into all that stuff, but the reality is, are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Because you see, Jesus Christ makes ordinary people extraordinary. He makes ordinary people extraordinary. And if I'm ashamed of him, then I'm just an ordinary church member that needs to ask myself a question. Do I really know Jesus Christ? Are you, Peter, that you have the right idea that he's Christ, but you're wrong on the kind of Christ that he is? Because, listen, when Christ called you, he called you to die to yourself. To die to yourself. And to give your life wholeheartedly to him. As I sat at Liberty this week and as these students lined up, I want to tell you something. It, it re-energized me. It re-energized me. I came back with barrels loaded, in case you haven't noticed. Because I sat there and talked to 900 students, and they turned away over 100 students that couldn't get into the room. And then I talked to 500 students in an evangelism class at Liberty University. I mean, anybody who goes to Liberty University, they know what they're getting, right? I mean, they know what they're getting. 
500 students sitting in a, an evangelism class and Dr. Wheeler is saying to me, you know, as we've been talking about how to be evangelistic, some of these kids in this room have gotten saved. They came to Liberty because they're Christian kids and wanted to go to a Christian school and they realize they've never gotten saved because they've never been willing to share their faith. And they've been ashamed of Jesus Christ. But when I stood there at the end and these students kept walking up and telling me their stories and talking to me about their passion, and when I talked to a guy and I sit down with him and he says, you know, he said, God called me. I, was, I had a house. I had a job. I sold everything. And we've been living off our savings of the house that we sold so that I can come here because somewhere I'm going to plant a church and I want to take a city for Jesus Christ. And I don't care if I make a lot of money. I walked off of that campus and said, thank God there's still a chance that we can turn this nation for Christ because we've got some young people. We've got some young people that want to make a difference. Okay, generation my age and up, what are they learning from us about having that kind of passion? generation my age and up what do they see in us that makes them want to be that way or will they become just as cynical and jaded and sarcastic as my generation is thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt for more information about Sherwood you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.